Hello, episode 61. Welcome back, listeners from around the globe. How are you doing? Hope life is bright and dandy and your summer is going well. It's sweltering in London. It's been the hottest day on record. Yesterday was the hottest day on record, I believe, ever. It was incredible. There was a point in the day where it actually was hurting my belly. It was so hot. Anyway, we won't, shouldn't complain. I say won't complain. We will complain. We shouldn't complain because not too far away it will be winter again and we're wishing for the heat. But anyway, I know it's coming from a global warming pace and some people are really enjoying it. So um, whatever you're doing in the world, just be careful in the sun and wear your factors 50, if you're like me, because I burn up. Anyway, hope summer is going well. So yes, um, thank you for your continued support and for coming back again. Apologies for the gap, yet again another gap. Um, I can only say that I've been busy with work, acting, voiceover stuff, life. Um, I was in the show, obviously. Um, Summer things happening and needing to get my life back in order for a bit. Um, because when you do a show, things tend to get into disarray somewhat. So um, that's what I've been doing. So apologies. But anyway, um, I have two lovely podcasts pre-recorded with some really good content for you you all over the next few weeks. So uh, look forward to that and sharing that with you. Um, I have a few other people lined up, hopefully, and uh, we should get back to some kind of business as usual. I know I said that in the last one and the one before, but um, as I say, it's just been a crazy time, which we'll talk about in a minute. Anyway, this is episode 61, and this week I'm talking to a really lovely chap. He's a director called Jamie Armitage, and he's directed a lot of stuff in his fairly short career already, Um, and he's most well-known at the moment for directing... Um, and being involved in the creation of the show Six. Um, for those of you around the world who aren't aware of it, most people in the UK probably are, especially people in London. Six is um, a is a is a is a kind of a rock pop musical. Um, it's it's the Henry the Eighth's wives, basically his six wives, and it's all their stories from their perspectives. And um, and go and listen to it on iTunes. I would say. Um, wherever you are in the world, because it sounds like it's going to be travelling all over the place and Jamie's off to uh, the US soon to be directing on that over there. Um, But what we're talking about here is he's directed two one-act plays by Tennessee Williams, which um, I will give you all the details about, well, we will give you all the details about when I'm talking to Jamie. Um, They're two one-act plays and uh, one was never staged in William's life and it hasn't been touched on that much um, but Jamie is a resident director at the Almeida Theatre in London um, and he's a junior associate director at the King's Head Theatre in London as well um, and we talk about so we talk about Tennessee Williams um, who was the author of these plays and uh, Jamie's feelings on uh, on theatre and um, we talk a lot about gay theatre because he's worked on a lot of gay theatre projects including uh, Boys in the Band that my lovely friend Mr Ian Hallard, previous guest, was in with Mr Mark Gatiss, his husband. Um, So there's lots of connections. Everybody knows everybody in London, it feels like sometimes. But anyway, um, that we will come to shortly. But just to keep you up, I hope hope Pride season has been marvellous for you. Has it? Have you had fun? Um, it's, It's still, for some of you, it still is Pride season. Should be Pride season all year round, really. Um, there's been a lot of 
grim news, which I'm not going to dwell on. Um, homophobic stuff happening. Um, and I, yeah, I don't want to dwell on that this time round because I've complained and moaned. And I don't know if it's helpful. Sometimes I will and sometimes I won't. But as it is still, I'm going to say it's still Pride season. So let's continue on a positive vibe this time. Um, I was actually performing on Pride night. So I didn't go to the parade in London. Um, as I would have had a foggy head from being out in the heat all day. And it just, I just know my limits at my tender age that it just wouldn't have been sensible. And so uh, I was there in spirit. And then um, after the show... Uh, there was a lot of um, pride celebration in the in the theatre pub bar afterwards, so that was that was enough. However, I, we are going to be marching, as you know, regular listeners at Margate Pride, uh, which is become uh, mine and my husband's one of our regular haunts, um, and it's a bit smaller than London, and um, and it's just as important. And we go there with two of our closest friends, and it's always a joy and a pleasure. Um, and it's by the sea, so it'll be a bit cooler, hopefully. Um, anyway, so I'll be doing that and continuing to, to be proud generally throughout the year. Anyway, I hope yours has been fun. Um, yes, as I say, I've been very busy. We finished the play Reformation that I was doing in London. And I just have to say, what a lovely, gorgeous cast of humans they were. So hello, gang. Hope you're OK if you're listening. You promised you would. <laughs> um, what else have I been up to? I've been up to Sheffield... Uh, last week for panto costume fittings for my, for Dame Cherry Bakewell, who is going to be my next dame, who I'll be playing at the Camberley Theatre. Details down the line because it's too far. It's too hot to be talking about Christmas shows right now. But um, that was loads of fun. And all I can say is that if you do come and see that, there's lots of treats in store with the costumes. Um, some really exciting stuff, costume-wise and generally. And I've read the script and it's loads of fun. Anyway... Um, I also did some voice work this week for an animation. It was a first for me to to be doing um, lip sync dubbing, essentially. Well, not lip syncing because it's, uh, but yeah, dubbing uh, to an animation. Um, and that was super fun and something new. And I really enjoyed the session. So um, if and when I get more news on where that will be shown, I'll give you a shout. But um, I, I'm not quite sure how and where and I won't give away anything until I know I can but it was really good fun um what else um oh yes uh so the day after the show finished uh myself and my hubby and our friend Tom went to this festival a local music festival uh, called On Blackheath which is where I live in southeast London and uh, it's a two-day festival. I couldn't make the first day because I was performing. And then on the Sunday we went and Grace Jones, the marvellous Grace Jones, was headlining. And listeners from way back will know that I've seen her, is it the third or maybe even fourth time I've seen her now? Um, she ends her set hula hooping to Slave to the Rhythm for about... 10 maybe even 15 minutes is a long version and that's how the show ends and she's in her 70s she looks incredible um big respect to grace jones and if you don't know go and just just do greatest hits or something like that compilation that itunes will offer you or spotify or whoever you listen anyway waffle or waffly um also the brand new heavies were playing and they're one of my favorite bands and that was great fun and so i got to even despite my tiredness from the work and the show i got to sing and dance uh, along to stuff that i really love which anyway music because i want to get on to, to mr armitage um brings me to my um 
recommendations for this week, for this episode, um, there's two albums. One is by my my idol, as you all know, is Mr. Prince Rogers Nelson Prince, and it's called Originals, um, and basically it's songs from the vault of his originals that he wrote either specifically for other people with them in mind, and he just recorded versions. I presume some of them as a guide track, and then some he just recorded for himself. Um, but they are fully finished, fully formed versions of songs. For instance, uh, Nothing Compares to You, which was a hit um, all around the world for Sinead O'Connor. Um, he has his original version of that. It was also it was a song written for a band called The Family, a Minneapolis band who I love as well. Loved. They're not really... They are together, but under a different name google it um also the glamorous life which was a sheila e song uh the Man- manic monday which was a massive hit for the bangles and if you don't know that then i think you just might never be listening to radio watching youtube or anything you can't really avoid knowing that song and if you don't well go and discover it now um but uh, there are two songs on it uh, there's one called holly rock which has been released as a single this week and has a video a new video obviously prince isn't in it but it's um an animation of prince talking to animations and it's so tasteful and so perfect and i really truly believe prince would appreciate it so um have a look at that holly rock on uh, wherever you look at uh, music videos and uh, and then there's a song called baby or a trip which was written for a singer called jill jones but i'd say that's probably my favorite song on this particular album it's just um it's just very atmospheric and fairly epic in emotion, and I love it. So anyway, Prince, of course, I'm always going to praise Prince and give those as recommendations, but go and listen to that. And then finally, before we meet Jamie, uh, there is an album by a group called Young Gun Silver Fox, and the album is called AM Waves. And I discovered this band watching a show about what has been classed as yacht rock. And if you don't know that, I'm not going to go into great details because it's quite it's quite complex to explain. But um, it's music from the late 70s, early 80s that is sort of comparable to Daryl Hall and John Oates, Hall and Oates, Michael McDonald, Steely Dan, people like that. And uh, it was a show about then and they said that there was a new band people who were styling themselves in the yacht rock vein. Young Gun and Silver Fox were there and I discovered this album, AM Waves. Um, And all I can say is if any of the above music that I quoted then ticks your boxes, go and listen. And it's perfect music for some, absolutely perfect summer music. Anyway, it's now time to jump in and meet the wonderful and marvellous Mr. Jamie Armitage. Jamie! Hello! Lovely to meet you. Thank you for coming here on this sweltering hot, hottest day of the year in 2019. Now, Jamie is here to talk about Southern Bells at the King's Head Theatre, London, which runs from the 24th of July, which has already passed, until the 24th of August, so you have plenty of time to go and see it. Um, it's two one-act plays, one which has never been staged before in William's life. Um, Jamie is a resident director at the Almeida Theatre, um, junior associate here at the King's Head, 
and was co-director of the Amazing West End Hit 6, the musical, um, which received five Olivier Award nominations. And that's amongst many, many other things in his short but illustrious career. <laughs> Um, so Jamie, first of all, before we talk about all of that, if we can yeah. get to know you, can you tell us where you were born and raised? I was born in a glorious town called Stevenage, it's just north of London. Hertfordshire. Hertfordshire. Um, and then moved down to London with my mum when I was three or so and have lived in London ever since. And happy in London. I love London. I don't love London today, so this is a very, <laughs> this is the worst day to ever get my praise for London, which is usually boundless, but today I am miserable in London because I am the worst creature in the heat. <laughs> so yes. I'm a bit annoyed as it says. It's coming on the central line, so it's melting for a good half an hour away here, but I am a huge fan of London. It's, yes. Um, and uh, school, so school and college were here, um, and um, school, academic? Yeah. Yeah, you enjoyed school? Enjoy, uh, enjoyed school, um, had the opportunity to do lots of things, like academic nerdiness was always there, played a bit of sport, played music, and did lots of drama as well. Yeah. Um, and then school's always a tricky one to look back on because there's a feeling of when I was there and sort of living day to day, I was saying like, oh, I'm happy, I'm kind of passing along. But I definitely over the last year or two have been thinking back on it more and going, oh, well, I spent a lot of time trying to pretend to be somebody who I wasn't, <laughs> trying to make people like me who I never should have even tried to be friends yeah, yeah. with. Um, and so it's always that confusing thing of looking back on it. But I always think it's very healthy for people to not say that schools were the happiest days of their life. Whenever you meet people who say that, I'm just like, wow, what have you been doing since you were Yeah, what about now? <laughs> and your wife, children. Yeah. Um, yeah. None of this was happy as I was when I was adolescent and confused about my identity. <laughs> yeah, yes. Actually, that's really true. Sorry, we're laughing because it's really hot in this room, yeah. so we may be slightly manic. Um, so, I mean, it's good to hear that, that school was a, was a pleasant if uh, sometimes, you know, um, you had to, probably in hot days like this, had to think a bit more. But other than that, there were no major issues with bullying or anything too uh, much. A little bit of bullying at my first school, yeah. um, which was because I was a chubby boy when I was... Sort of eight, nine, ten. Right. Um, and in the way that schools can be cruel about that, school is a bit cruel about that. Yeah. But never to an extent where I felt that I didn't want to be here anymore. Um, and through teenage years, it was a tough, edgy, edgy environment in yeah. terms of. Um, I think it's just it's just that thing. Once you're not a teenager anymore, you look at teenagers and go. They're so cruel to each other. Yeah. And it's just like the humour is very woman up ship and trying to cut you or whatever it is. And so that always makes you feel a bit unsettled thinking yeah. about it. But um, I had a happy enough time at school. Goose. Wouldn't want to go back there. Wouldn't want to relive it. Wouldn't want to do any of it again. I know. I never understand when people say, oh, I, I wish I could be back there or anything. I'd, even if school's been okay. Um, I think it's all about scheduling attacks when they say that. I think those are the two <laughs> things that people are really matching onto is they ha hate as an adult having to schedule their lives and having to do tax. Because as a kid, it's really simple. It's you just get like, you get on your bus, go to school, get off, you're there all day, you're just told where you need to be at every single moment, and then you go home and you do it's your true. homework or you play, and it's you have true. no idea what taxes. So those, I think, are like the two really crucial things. And debt and yeah. banks. Yeah, yeah, no, this is true. Well, that's good. It's good to, good to, good to hear it. <laughs> 
Um, so uh, your school, university was happy. Um, so where you studied, if you can tell me where you studied, you, you went studied to? studied at Cambridge. Yes. So, um, and theatre, let's jump back actually, theatre for you, when did that kick in? When, was, when did the interest, where did it grow from? Was the nucleus? So it was kind of a lovely environment to grow up in because my mum had been a performer. Um, she right. was in various West End productions from uh, Les Mis to Paris de Penzance to Mercury Farces and so it's been really lovely like having that something I've been aware of mm-hmm. since I was little with theatre a really Great exciting theory. a really exciting thing to uh, no but then in terms of like when my own when it shifted from just being something that was around and I kind of liked to being something which really connected with me was when I was about five, I was taken to see The Lion King, and I have the clearest sense memory of that show, of what it was, just to watch the opening and just feel complete joy and elation. Yeah. And I was actually at a, um, a ceremony a couple months ago, which was celebrating The Lion King, and so they did the opening and they came on with those birds yeah, and yeah. animals, and it was astonishing because you could you kind of go, oh wow, that's where all of that came from, which crops up in so many other shows, like that is... The kind of crucible where a lot of those um, amazing expressive ideas probably first hit the mainstream yeah. um, and seeing that again just kind of reminded me of what it was to see that as a five year old and to have no awareness whatsoever of the person standing below with a stick or the per- the puppeteer uh, the puppeteer in mm-hmm. the um, the zebra costume whatever mm-hmm. it would be but just seeing the thing seeing mm-hmm. the animal seeing um, what it was suggesting and just being so caught up in the joy of that and that stayed in me so strongly and I think if I was really dealing down into that for like trying to get that feeling of wonder into an audience has always driven me a little bit have you seen it have you did you return to the Lion King I'm really nervous about doing it because yeah because my memory is so good I'm sure I will love it because it is it's a brilliant production it's run yeah. for a very long time for good reason but my memory of it is so, so clear and so powerful. Sometimes and I think I just see, see the mechanisms of it quite a lot, which sure. would be But maybe that'd be interesting kind of, in a kind of way, because that's, um, it's always that thing when you work in theatre that people kind of ask you, do you still enjoy it? And I yeah. guess you kind of, you engage in it in a different way, perhaps. But the first thing is, if it's really good, you forget that you're, you forget that you're analysing it and you do just enjoy it. And yeah. I always have that as like my benchmark for when I've really engaged my show. Yeah. But I think, going back to see something which I can remember, I think I just respect I'd understand it more, but I'd respect it a lot more. Like I'd see, like, oh wow, that the thought of like that you would use that um, prop or that puppet or that costume to suggest that is genius, and I think that would be the thing I'd get out of it if I went back. So maybe I'll get over my fear of disrupting a childhood memory and return. To Someone defines it as, as a Christmas present or something, and then. The but if you're offering, um, you <laughs> for being in this room in this hot weather, I owe you a, a, a few West End shows. Um, <laughs> Um, so, yeah, so first thing that you ever directed, ever, ever, anywhere in the world? Uh, my first thing that I ever directed was in my second year at university. Yeah. I dived straight into Shakespeare land and did Henry IV, part one. <laughs> I mean, not the, not the easiest of choices. No. Well. It used to that I just didn't think about that at the time. Yeah. I was just so guided by a desire of doing a story I love. Yeah. And also wanting to do something which I felt other Shakespeare's weren't doing at university at that moment in time. I had no idea of what I thought it could be and how it could connect with an audience. Sure. So I was looking to explore that a little bit more. Yeah. 
Looking back on it, I probably should have got something a bit easier. But well, I think once you've directed like a couple of battle scenes with 14, 15 people, then everything is much easier uh, after that. Actually, I was going to say, it's, it's the deep end and then it can only get easier. <laughs> wow. I mean, incredible. And do you think you'll go back to that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I love that. I think there's a, there's a journey as a director of trying to um, get people to trust you with that scale yeah. of production because it is difficult to do them well without resources and that's not just talking about sets and costumes that's just time uh-huh. like you can definitely do a really stripped back version of a Shakespeare but I think if you haven't had a good rehearsal period to interrogate so everyone understands what they're doing and saying then I think you missed something sure so hopefully one day I'll get All to right, it fingers crossed. fingers crossed watch this space listeners mm-hmm. um, so we have to talk about six yes um, and where did that begin for you? Because it sounds like you were... Uh, this is all back to university? It's all back to university days. So it, it began in the truest sense of when I first um, connected with the creators of it was um, through a pantomime which we did at university, which was Robin Hood. Um, <laughs> and I was in my third year and um, it was the end of the second year when we had to pick who the composer would be. And I remember so clearly this first year walked in this amazing, expressive guy called Toby Marlowe and he just played the most beautiful music and the thing which I think separates Toby from so many composers is his ability to write hooks and catchy tunes is unparalleled mm-hmm. it's beautiful what he does with music and so um, he kind of came in and played his music and so that kind of grew into what Robin Hood was which was um, a panto which showed a massive debt to musical theatre but also pop uh, pop music as well yeah. and also on that um, team the amazing choreographer and my assistant director was Lucy who um, Right Six with Toby and is my co-director on the professional production now. Um, and so we knew each other from back then. And then the journey of the student production began when the Musical Theatre Society decided that they were no longer going to keep on taking up um, versions of uh, professional pre-existing musicals like Pippin, Southern Park with George, which had been done brilliantly, but because of how expensive rights are, yeah. even as a student you could only do short runs of things sure. and so I think they felt frustrated that the best thing they could hope for even if it was really brilliant was to maybe break even so that was tough but also in a really beautiful um, cultivating way they knew that there were students who wanted to write musicals who wanted to create new work and so they took a very clever decision which was um, instead of doing a short run they did a full length run but they would give the support in order to create a new bit of work and that new bit of work was a bonkers idea about the Six Wives of Henry VIII as a girl band doing a pop concert to tell their side of the story. And I remember the first time I was told that, I thought, <laughs> I wasn't quite sure what I thought. It was, it, it, it was, it was, it's a really silly idea. And I think we've spoken about this a lot recently is how it could have, it could have not been great. <laughs> and I remember when, when, before anything was written, before I could um, show my friends about it, and I told them what it was, they were like, oh, like Horrible Histories. You're like, no, Horrible Histories is great, but that's not what it's trying to be. And they go, oh, so kind of like a sketch or anything. You're like, yeah, kind of, but not really. But it was through um, like the commitment of Toby and Lucy to this incredible vision for a show mm. um, that they managed to create something which is funny, is fun, but also really taps into something deeper, makes you think, makes you feel, um, and is presented in a way that you're kind of creating something which does feel like you're at a pop concert. Even at that student level, and the tiny resources we had in a converted conference hotel room um, in Edinburgh, 
Yeah. We still managed to create something which was trying. What to, was the what venue? It was a sweet venue, so it's just oh, on the grass. Yeah. Okay. yeah, and we're in this 110 seater, um, carpeted, really sort of like six inch high stage, yeah. um, 110 seats, which are those very like these are conference rooms, chairs, sure. and they have those kind of like non-specific artworks on the wall and just kind of black curtains and very very simple. And we had our set, which was a series of overlapping purple frames. Yeah. And, the cast walked on and they were yeah, a bunch of um, 18 to 21 year olds going, yeah. we're the six flies of Henry VIII and we're a superstar girl band, hooray! And the audience just got what it was instantly. Um, and I think that was always nice as they kind of came in thinking it would be a bit fun, a bit silly, and it had elements of that that was also pushing to be something greater than that as well. And it grew, the audiences jumped on it really quickly, didn't they? So I don't think we ever could have expected how quickly it seemed to catch people's imaginations and I think the true measure of that was when we did a first preview and it was 110 seat venue we did a first preview there were 40 people there maybe yeah most of, most of them were our friends coming to support like, okay great cool this is good if we get a bit more of this it's be nice let's fly a bit harder tomorrow fly a bit harder tomorrow mm-hmm. we've got 60 and we're like okay still some of our friends are nice and supportive but a few people we don't know flattering's going well third day we were sold out and we just kind of looked around that auditorium and leaned over to the team and was like I don't know who any of these people are. <laughs> and we realised we'd found an audience. We'd, yeah. we'd found people who'd heard about it, who, um, from people who'd already seen it, who had read about it and thought it was interesting, or who we'd spoken to um, on the mile, uh, the Royal Mile where you draw the flyering, mm. and they were willing to take a chance in it. And it just kind of grew from there. And it was from a third preview to the end of the run, just full houses all the way through. And that was when we knew that we perhaps were tapped into something quite special mm. about what the story could be and how people wanted to see it and get excited about yeah. it. And then it grew and grew and then it came into London and then it yeah. went to West End and then nominated for everything. And <laughs> and it's and in Chicago. It's in Chicago at the moment, going out there in a week and a bit's time to go check on it just as it closes. And then it's going on to Boston, then it's going to Canada. Wow. So it's got an exciting journey ahead of it in North America. It's a testament of hard work paying off. Yeah. And also producers having faith. It. Sure. Thing. Um, they were willing to trust some very young creatives mm-hmm. to try and deliver something which was different yeah. and I think all of them all the producers who saw the student version were bowled away by the response that it got but could also see right at its core there was something which if it could be carried very carefully from the student environment to the professional environment might turn into something special mm-hmm. as a professional show mm. I I have to say my my listeners will be really uh, probably know this already, but I was listening to RuPaul podcast mm-hmm. has a podcast as well, and um, him and Michelle Visage discussed yes. and <laughs> how they are massive fans. It was um, <laughs> it's, it's one of those lovely things of doing a long running show in London is people come and see it and so you get. Um, all sorts like the Guinea Junior came along mm-hmm. Dustin Hoffman's been which is like amazing wow these legends these Hollywood legends the thing that sent the cast was a complete <laughs> meltdown yeah. like the biggest fan girl you've ever seen was when <laughs> RuPaul and Michelle Passage came to see it and because Six it's a constant environment and their whole the whole mantra of the show for the performance is to engage with the audience yeah, to speak yeah. to them to connect with them yeah. and I was just remember speaking to Millie who was playing Anne Boleyn and she kind of just sort of turned around to deliver her first line and just flirted herself looking straight into RuPaul's eyes and then they came on stage afterwards and, and I'm not even oh, there but um, I was just hearing that it was a really beautiful moment of connection because our cast a lot of our creators look up to sure. those two in that show yeah. really highly 
And yeah, so getting mentioned on that podcast was really special. Zillions of people around the world listening, so that's <laughs> that's incredible. Um, let's talk a bit about your experiences as um, associate and assistant. Yeah. Um, you worked with you talked about your mum working with Ray Cooney, but you've also worked with I Ray Cooney yourself. I did. I worked on a touring production of Out of Order yeah. in twenty seventeen, and it was fascinating. There's so much of being an assistant, which is about trying to expose yourself to as many different processes as possible and just learn wherever you can. Yeah. And I was very lucky with my first job. I worked um, with someone called Adam Penford, who's brilliant. He's now running Nottingham um, on the boys in the band. And I kind of watched him and went, oh, okay, yeah, this makes sense. I see what you're doing. I see that I'm going to try and emulate what you do mm. because it's fantastic. The process works really well of delivering something which is funny and moving and heartfelt and goes to somewhere very... Um, beautiful and sad. And then moving on to a project with Ray Cooney was seeing that there's lots of different ways to direct a show and when it's something as specific as farce, Ray Cooney is a master of that. The work that he was doing in the 70s and 80s was astonishing. I've had multiple comedies running in the West End at the same time which were running for a long time as well mm. and it was seeing a master of their craft which is always exciting and when it was directing fast and it was Ray doing it, it was something closer to choreography. It was so much about movement and bodies in space and timing and not much on the analysis side, which is obviously vital for drama, but in terms of just playing like high energy comedy, it was beautiful and he could really sense what worked and what didn't work, how much he had to um, stage facing downstairs so the audience could keep connected with it and how much he had to not do that. And there was a series of like little moves and turns and, and the classic thing is like oh no someone's about to walk through the door you need to get out of here it's like how do you do the motion of opening a door and pushing that a, a, another character through it and then closing it again mm-hmm. in one thing that's a real craft it's like a precise dance move of getting that right absolutely to see him do that was incredible yeah um, but yeah, we were talking before and you mentioned that you'd um, had a summer yeah, studying some clowning. This is back when I still was centred by performing. Um, yes. And I, um, I spent a summer at uh, the Gollier Clown School and I learned about clowning. I learned about um, another part of it was called Le Jeu, which is just the game playing which underlines, underlies all performing. Um, and that was incredible of seeing that, having that experience and then kind of comparing that to the way uh, Ray Cooley worked. And comedy is something which I think is so often looked down on by other people because they think it's easy, they think it's cheap, and they think it's all sorts of things. And then people try to do it and they mess it up because it's really difficult. Mm -hmm. It is so hard trying to predict anything in a rehearsal room, but trying to predict where an audience will laugh and how they will laugh and how much you need to control that or not control that is unbelievably hard. And so I have infinite respect for people who do comedy plays and do them well because they're not done very often no and there aren't a lot of them either like noises often on at the moment you go thank goodness because that's like one of the great farces but yeah there, there aren't many of them and that's something I'd love to work on later in life is trying to find more of those brilliant farces or trying to help create some new ones because I think that is one of the most special experiences when you get that just right and I think I've only had a couple of times when I've watched shows before and you just almost don't know where you are as an audience member. You're so caught up, you almost hurt from the laughing so much. Yeah. It's such a special thing. 
Do you have any comedy actors that you would love to work with that you perhaps haven't had the chance to yet? That you've oh, I've got a couple of them. Boys in the back. Yeah, got yeah. A guy called Mark Gatiss. He's ah, pretty good. Yes. Um, <laughs> he's got incredible comedy timing. <laughs> and you just see somebody who is so used from his work on League of Gentlemen as well as everything else and just yeah. being in front of an audience and landing those jokes and um, yeah. um, working like that. But... I think, I think there's a lot there's a lot of people who have really funny bones and if they could just be given the opportunity to express that a little bit more um, and did you see Summer and Smoke at the Almeida? No but I did hear yeah. lots of yeah. Patsy uh, Ferran who was in that is an yeah, amazing yeah. actor and yeah. um, it's a very sort of beautiful theatrical role in that Tennessee Williams but obviously I've been doing a bit of comedy before and she's hilarious and so yeah. someone like that and there's something I think there's more of them um, if you go and find them and a couple of my friends who I still stay in touch with who've gone down the kind of sketch comedy stand up route I want to get them into this. It's yeah. brilliant. Like, um, one of my closest friends who's my housemate um, is a stand-up. Also works in the foreign office. Slightly strange combination of jobs. Um, well, I mean, I suppose it kind of makes sense because to escape <laughs> one for the other. Yeah, wow. Um, and so, but he was in the first production I ever directed. He was, um, he was playing Bardolf, which is one of Falstaff's um, pub friends. Uh-huh. And and just getting someone to right. really land with jokes is a very special thing. And always working with friends is good fun. Always. Most, well, mostly. Um, so this is also brings me to another question. Uh, you, you don't have any inklings towards acting yourself no, any I, longer? Not anymore. I did it first year of university and I always regret that I did do it because um, it gave me an understanding of what it's like to be on stage. But I was the most self-conscious actor in the world. I was so aware, too aware, and like imagine the worst case scenario, like what an audience who was watching me would be thinking and how I looked and how I sounded and how I was coming across, which is the opposite of what you're supposed to do as an actor. Um, And the more I've worked, the more I've realised that acting's just this astonishing art of staying in the moment, staying in the scene, yet still somehow having an awareness of an audience that you can adjust slightly so that it is a live event which is shaped by a different audience on a different night who respond to different things in different ways. Yeah. But I am <laughs> glad I don't have to go back there anymore. Um, but what it has given me is a little bit of an understanding of what acting is, yeah, and how it is as a thing. And I think that's really important because it means, as a director, I hope I, hope I don't do this, is like trying to get actors to do things which are impossible or is the wrong way of asking them to do it or without an understanding of how hard it is to be on stage mm. and that is something I hope I can always bear in mind is staying in touch with the idea of how difficult acting can be yeah yeah and, it's, and, it's, and it shouldn't always sometimes you want it to feel like it's an easy ride but oh completely it shouldn't, yeah. but it shouldn't you should have but, you should um, have some I, yeah I, I also don't mean difficult in terms of the journey of getting there I mean in terms yeah. of like how exposed so that's a better word it's what an exposing actor is to be on stage mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot which I think a director can do to make one feel less exposed yeah. make one feel less vulnerable out there yeah. and so you can just focus on telling the story and getting in touch with the character and finding the truth in the moment being able to being able to uh, notice actors' differences and likenesses and, mm. and, that, and that kind of balance, um, which I don't think is necessarily the easiest thing to do. Which I think why being a director is is it was also being a um, what we would call a human resources manager. But um, yet, if you don't mind, we we'll talk a little bit about some of the works that were here That's at King's Head. Um, so the Chemsex Monologues and mm-hmm. Five Guys Chilling. If you could just uh, give us a little brief. 
uh, summary of, first of all, of Chemsex monologues and um, your experience of working on that. Uh, so Chemsex, I was an assistant on when it came back here in 2017, um, and that is a very beautiful play, which is a series of monologues by different characters who have different levels of engagement and interaction with the Chemsex world. Mm. And there's from such different walks of life and understanding of what that world is, and they're these really beautifully written portrayals of humans trying to understand something which is quite difficult and responding to it and it hits that really special spot of writing where it's honest it's true but there's also an element of poetry about the images crafted and the language used to express it and I felt really lucky to see how something like that connected with an audience Mm -hmm. and really moved them yeah, and you had to do probably quite a fair bit of um, time research and, I th- yeah, and I think that, um, talking to people. The, the amount of um, preparatory work which had been done to be certain that these stories were being told with great sensitivity and with understanding was amazing mm-hmm. from the writing side, from the directorial side, from the actors, and I think that was essential in that story having a chance of mm-hmm. doing what it did, which was being a really honest portrayal of that world and mm-hmm. the people who are around it. And you worked with Peter Darney. I on, did, on, on Five Guys Chilling, Chilling, the, yeah. uh, the verbatim play. Yeah. Um, and that was a fascinating experience as well because you're taking real life people's account of this and putting it on, on stage in a way where they are interacting and sharing these stories and I think that was that's particularly interesting because what is rare for a verbatim play um, where you're taking people's words and just I just yeah. have to say them is that um, they weren't speaking directly to the audience they were kind of just engaging with one another you had this scene this world which was a flat where a, a chill out was taking place mm. and that was a very interesting experience because it was so different from a lot of the other work that yeah. before um, so this is all King's Head yes um, all King's Head which is where we are at the moment in, uh, in, a, in a garret room I think <laughs> you described it um, it's sweltering um, but Boys in the Band you worked with Ian Hallard my friend Ian yes. who's been on the podcast before and uh, tell us a bit about that experience that was the most blissful first job I could have ever asked for mm-hmm. it was I don't it's just, I think there's always that thing we were hearing you talk about the difficulties of it and all that kind of stuff no. that is a job where I can just speak with just complete joy about it because it was the perfect first experience mm-hmm. as an assistant because I got to work with a director who um, I respected very quickly and then my spectrum has only grown. I got to work with an amazing cast including Ian and Cleo Mark. Yeah. Um, and it was really special being a part of that story coming back to stage mm-hmm. and seeing how it connected with an audience. Mm. And, what was really lovely is just sort of watching around the room at the end and seeing people who were clearly felt the resonance of it and they were moved by that story and could feel the heart below the surface of what is a very very honest play so old when it was written um, yeah I really loved that show and um, plenty of audiences I'm sure people who were quite varying in age as well I should imagine absolutely there was um, there was a really beautiful moment when I met someone who had been working at the New London Theatre where I was an usher just after I left university I was just after I left school it was my first, it was my first job after school I was um, working for a couple of, uh, working for a few months at the New London Theatre and there was an older guy who worked there for a few for many years and 
I was sitting in the audience one day at Boys in the Band, I sort of saw across the auditorium, so I was like, oh, I've got to go see Hello after the show. And I kind of walked around to go see him, and he was just standing there with tears coming down his face, and he gave me this big, big hug. Um, and he told me how he'd seen the original London version of this, and then he'd come back to see this version. And the thing which he said, which just chimes so beautifully and shows the importance of exploring these historical works, um, is he said, uh, Boys in the Band made me cry then as a young man made me cry now as an old man mm. and it was for very different reasons but it still moves me and yeah. it was such a sort of perfect encapsulation of what plays like Boys in the Band like the Tennessee Williams Southern Bells plays that we're doing at the moment yeah. can do which we're going to talk about now <laughs> so um, if you don't mind if you could um, break because it's two one act plays yeah. um, and the first one has been done before um, Something Unspoken is it in that order? Something Unspoken, it's something unspoken first and 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 tell sad stories of the deaths of queens. <laughs> Are you giggling because it's such a difficult title to say? Uh, I've been doing. I've been working on this play for eighteen months now. <laughs> I still struggle with saying its title. It is. Um, so, so there's um, two. So there's something unspoken, yes. which was performed in Tennessee Williams's life, um, was part of the double bill with Sunny Last Summer, which is um, a very well known play, um, and then. The other, and tell sad stories of the deaths of queens, was never performed during Tennessee mm. Williams' life. And the first performance that happened was in 2004, over in America, and was performed um, once here in the UK about 10 years ago. Right. And so it has not been given very many productions so far. Um, so yeah, two plays which had very different sort of theatrical historical journeys being paired together for the first time. Sure. So could you mind just giving a, a brief summary of Something Unspoken first Absolutely. So Something Unspoken is about two women who have been living together for 15 years, um, under the under the guise of employer and secretary, and throughout that whole time, they have been feeling something for each other. Mm. They've been feeling love for each other, and the whole play is about the day when that unspoken something below the surface comes to the top, and they begin to speak about their yearning and sharing their feelings with one another. Wow. <laughs> quite a strong piece to start with yes. <laughs> but it's, it's so difficult because talking about it and you know, it's about it's the yearning yes. and love which it is it is so funny the, the first 15 minutes it's like the character of Cornelia um, is a lot like Amanda in The Glass Menagerie uh-huh. like uh, that, that classic uh-huh. older Southern Belle type character sort of a grand Southern dame um, and she's hilarious yeah. and so it's like this Kind of recognisable Tennessee Williams pairing of um, Amanda from the Glass Menagerie with um, with Alma from Summer and Smoke. It's a slightly more reticent character yeah. who doesn't want to speak about her feelings, wants to keep stuff below the surface, and that's her secretary, Grace. And so it's about the interaction of these two very different characters um, and the love that they each feel for one another. Happiness. Um, <laughs> and tell, shall we just say and tell? But tell sad stories. <laughs> yes, and tell sad <laughs> stories. There we go. Um, can you just give us a summary of that, and then I've got a couple of questions to ask you about that as well. Oh, absolutely. So, um, tell sad stories is about an evening between two characters. Um, one of whom is called Candy, and is an openly gay man living in New Orleans in the nineteen fifties. And then the other character is Carl, who is a sailor. And Carl is a lot less certain of his sexuality, to put mm. it Like, he's someone who very much professes to being straight and being quite hetero-assertive about that. But below the surface, below that bluff, there is a confused, lost person who 
doesn't know how to express himself, who doesn't know what to make of the feelings inside him, mm. what his body is telling him what he wants, what his heart is telling him what he wants. And so it's about these two characters and the evening that they're together, trying to see whether there is a shared life for them together. And so for you directing this, what you, what did you focus on to, to bring the, for want of better description, for the truth of, of the, how did you deal with this? Because I think you were saying before that it's on the page, especially the sailor can come across as quite um, aggressive and curtain. And, I see, yeah. which, and you never quite be certain about these things. It's like, a part of me thinks the reason why and tell sad stories of the deaths of queens doesn't get done very often, yeah. despite it being so brilliant, is that on the page it can read as quite a brutal story. Because yeah. if you don't dig below the surface, the character of Carl, who's the younger sailor, from the beginning, from maybe the third or fourth page, is just unbelievably brutal, quite openly homophobic. And you start to wonder, like, why is Candy keeping him in the flat like he tries to leave and Candy stops him and tries to talk to him a bit more yeah. and I think if you read it with that lens on then it makes sense why it's not done very open because yeah. it's, it doesn't feel like it has much worse us until you start peeling away the layers and you're thinking which I think is always a good guy for Tennessee Williams which is a lot of people actually a good guy for Tennessee Williams and life which is people don't always say what they really think um, and true. Carl I think is a much more complicated character because mm. He's professing to being straight. He's professing to not having liaisons with men. But has, and seems to have enjoyed them, and seems to be confused about that. And so what becomes apparent is that his language, what he actually says, is a front. It's the attempt of um, coming across as the man he wants to be, rather than the person he actually is. And I think the thing which really unlocked us, unlocked uh, this for us in rehearsals was when... Um, we said, Carl isn't Stanley Kowalski, he wants to be Stanley Kowalski, but isn't. Mm-hmm. And suddenly this character made a lot more sense. You had someone who was genuinely uncertain about their sexuality, was feeling such strong attraction to Candy, but didn't know how to talk about that, didn't yeah. know how to express that. And that's why he says the things he does. Incredible. Um, <laughs> also, Tennessee Williams, I mean, for you, has that bit, has Tennessee Williams been, been a part of your, uh, you know, has... has he been somebody that you've you've loved throughout your well from childhood or did somebody you picked up in university or later in life so it's one of those names which i think it's always just floating around partly because it's such a fabulous name and yeah. as soon as you hear it you remember it um yeah. and so it's one of those names that i can't remember the first time i was told about tennessee williams so the name's always been buzzing around um but i didn't i didn't really connect with it as early as some other works of when I was a teenager. It was kind of more through university that I began to understand it a lot more. I think yeah. Skimmer, I wasn't quite sure who these people were, why they were behaving the way they did. Like, I watched um, the amazing film Street Culture, since rewatched um, when I was a teenager. I kind of liked it. And then it was only through university that I started reading uh, those plays more closely and actually discovering what was worth service. And kind of since then, he is so firmly my favourite. American playwright. There is something about the characters he creates and the pain that they have hidden below the surface yeah. and the way they interact, which is unbelievably beautiful. And that, that coupled with his poetic expression, I think it's just such beautiful writing. So before you even got to this point, this was already a, a thing for you, so this is incredibly Absolutely. To... Yeah, and the first time I saw The Glass Menagerie, um, it was quite recently actually, it was 2016, I was up in Edinburgh and I saw John Tiffany's phenomenal production 
and it was the international festival, so very much not like the kind of like, <laughs> like dark, sweaty comedy clubs and strange theatre spaces that I've been spending the strange most strange audiences. Exactly. This was like a much more, it was much older, sort of more uh, dressed up, sort of more austere audience. Yeah. And but the fact that I was sitting in the middle of the beautiful King's Theatre in Edinburgh and I was just so captured by the story and I was really moved by it. Um, and at the end, I was. This is one of the few times I've ever had this in my life. I was the only person standing up in an auditorium of about 500 people. And I didn't care because I'd loved the play so much. And I'd loved what the cast had done, what the team had done. Yeah. And I just wanted to give them as much adulation as I could as a single person in the yeah. audience. And I didn't care that everyone else was sitting down. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, something. <laughs> you feel if you feel it. Um, so the relevance of these plays in 2019, I mean, where do you, where do you feel they fit in and why, why are they important for an audience to come and see them now? I always find it really difficult to predict how people will find relevance. I find relevance to be such a specific, personal um, interaction with the show. Yeah. And I think with a lot of these historical, um, historical works, particularly historical queer works, is you'd hope that they wouldn't have too much relevance today from 50, 60 years ago. You know, our environments are so different. And there's ways in which that's true, and there's ways in which that's not true. But what I've noticed from doing and tell the stories of the deaths of queens in a very short version last year, and having our first preview last night, mm. Sun Bells, is seeing that these, audience, uh, these audiences respond to these plays. There is something about people who are not able to fully express their love for one another, whether that be for personal reasons or societal reasons, or a sense of who they would like to be rather than who they actually are, in the case of Carl, of wanting to seem like a very um, strong, powerful man in the 1950s, but actually he's not that, is really beautiful and is emotionally relevant. And so that is the thing which I think is so important about re-engaging with these historical works, is trying to see whether they're portraits of humans in a very specific period in time can reach across the years and touch us today. Yeah. And I think these plays do. Just taking from, as a guidance from last night, I've seen people smiling along with it, laughing, recognising the situation. Yeah. And then being moved to tears towards the end. So that's really special. I hope that will only grow as the run continues. And you've had an audience already giving you that reaction, which is fantastic. And you've got press night tomorrow. Yes. Um, and plenty of time for people to come and see. So 24th of August still. Now, um, what is next for Jamie after, or during, I'm sure, what's next on the agenda for you uh, work-wise? My uh, work agenda is very much taken up by six for the next couple of months. So right. I'm going over to, as I mentioned, Chicago, the North American production. I am going to... Swanning around. Well, this is the bit which sounds the most funny. I'm going to um, Seattle to go look at the cruise version of it, which is going on a cruise up to Alaska. Wow. Um, And then I am um, rehearsing with the new West End cast, and then, Um, really excitedly, the UK tour cast, because we're going out on tour um, in October, and doing a nine-month UK tour, which is going all over the place, and... That is so exciting about taking this story which means so much to us and has managed to connect so much with London audiences already to the rest of the country and then getting to share in the joy which is six as well. How exciting. Now, I'm not going to keep you too long, Jamie, just some quick fire no, questions. There's always this kind of like zen which comes from being in the room which is this hot for so long. <laughs> I know, it's either you give, you fight or you give in. <laughs> um, so, favourite album? From the top of your head. Favourite album <laughs> is 
Rumours by Fleetwood Mac. Incredible choice. And why would you choose that album in particular? I don't know, I think it's... I think it's the, it's the same for my love of Tennessee Williams. There's something about capturing that kind of pain of the human existence, particularly in the case of that album to do with love and heartbreak mm-hmm. and collaboration. And it's beautiful. And I think as a work of art, it stands alone as an album which you listen to from beginning to end. And I do do that. And I don't do that with all albums because yeah. you just want a couple of tracks and this is the one I will start at the beginning and work all the way through to the end because it is so beautiful. And one that you can escape in. Absolutely. Um, book. Book. Okay. Oh. It's <laughs> not... Oh. Okay, so, um, my favourite book is a book called Stoner by John Williams, which is, not about stoners, as we would understand today, <laughs> but is about an academic called Stoner, who's a mid-level, uh, mid-achieving academic at a small university in America, and he's starting to evaluate whether or not his life has been without purpose and it's unbelievable how it just captures this character having that realisation and I think works which look to delve into that of what is the meaning of life what is existence what um, gives fulfilment or doesn't give fulfilment yeah. always really chimed with me and I think that's the book which I'd really recommend people checking out um, had this beautiful like, um, renaissance about six years ago um, just because he was very. He wasn't really appreciated at all um, in his lifetime. Yeah. Um, Stoner kind of slipped under the radar. His, Buffalo's Crossing, which is another one of his books, slipped under the radar. Been read in some literary circles, but not many. And then it kind of. I don't know exactly who or how it was rediscovered. But suddenly, it was just everywhere. Uh-huh. People were kind of talking about it. Like the New York Times were talking about the Guardian, which is running articles about right. this beautiful book, which had been rediscovered from decades ago. So I recommend that. Okay. And then finally, yeah, film. Ooh. So there's some really obvious mainstream choices which, I'm, which I won't do because I always feel this have something a bit more interesting. Yeah. So my film is going to be Across the Universe, which is a Julie Taymor film. Okay. Um, which a lot of people haven't heard of and I absolutely adore it. And it is, it is a jukebox musical with all the Beatles music in it. And it is stunning. And that... It's the main thing which I think you just feel is like the beauty of this music mixed with Julie Taymor, who I'd say yeah. is one of the best visionary directors in terms of visual style and visual storytelling. And mainly she's known from The Lion King. So clearly I've loved her since I was a little kid. Still <laughs> Still with you. Still Still with you. Um, and so <laughs> that has always been a film that I will go back to and enjoy every single time because yeah, the story is about a Liverpudlian man going um, to try and find who his father is in America and he gets caught up in all the protest movements in the 60s, the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam movement and it is just a very thrilling story. Anyone we'd know in it? Jim Sturgis and Eddie Izzard. There's a lot of amazing cameos. So there's Eddie Izzard who plays this kind of, I think it's in a drug trip sequence, um, <laughs> He sings for the benefit of Mr. Kite as an over-the-top um, MC of a circus. And then Bono is also in it. <laughs> Bizarrely, he sings um, I'm the Walrus. <laughs> He's a kind of West Coast mystic. It is. I, I, I mean, there's, there's, so, there's so many bizarre cameos. It's just a joy to watch. I mean, like, oh, that's that person. That's that person. Um, so, yeah, it's good to one. have one to discover. Yes. Um, and then finally, mm-hmm. if you can give us all your social medias for yourself and for the show or the, and or the King's Head. See, so my Twitter is Jar Armitage, and I tweet on occasion. Um, and <laughs> then 
the King's Head, it's King's Head Theatre, and the show goes under the hashtag, hashtag SouthernBells, K-H-T, and all tickets and everything can be found on the King's Head Theatre website. Fantastic. Well, long may she run here. Thank you. And, um, and God, enjoy your trips around the world. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. And my thanks again to the lovely Mr. Jamie Armitage for spending that time with me <laughs> trapped in a garret room in the sweltering hottest day of the year, hottest day ever in London. Um, and uh, yes, it was, uh, was a pleasure. And uh, then we skipped off our separate ways to enjoy the, well, let's say the air. There wasn't much air. But um, yes, complete pleasure. So best of luck uh, to Jamie with all his future projects and with um, the ongoing run at the King's Head. So please get down there. I'm going to put all the links at the page for the show. So thanks, gang, again. Look after yourselves. And I'll be back again, promise, very, very soon. Cheers. Bye-bye. <laughs>